clubhouse. Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu Podcast. My name's Mike Caputo. Join me and my co-host, Anna Hoagie, as we explore Season 2 of Nosferatu every week. Hey, Anna, how you doing? Hi, Mike. I'm Anna, and I am a Rolls-Royce enthusiast. I love it. And you have to say it several times and get a little bit creepier every time you tell people you're a Rolls-Royce enthusiast. I think it's the new Love You Like a Big Dog for this season. <laughs> I'm still stuck on Come Out and Say How Do. Oh, yes. <laughs> I still say that all the time. It has it is completely entered my vernacular. You are no stranger to Nosferatu and, and the fandom of Nosferatu, but you are a new member of the Pod Clubhouse Clubhouse. So why don't you tell a little bit about who you are and what your fandoms look like, what, what you do. Who are you, Anna Hoagie? I guess I'm just some crazy artist girl. I got into the X-Files way back when I was in college. And then after college, I guess around 97, I came online um, looking for other fans. That just sort of continued through all the different mediums, IRC chats and bulletin boards and PHP forums and then MySpace and now Facebook and I, I guess I kind of became addicted to building communities. I've worked on all kinds of scales, hundreds of thousands of members to a few hundred members. This group I, I built for Nosferatu has basically become a family. It's a special thing. It's, 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 it's really close to my heart now. How many members are in the group now? I mean, it just kept growing exponentially over the course of the first season. What, what would you say your current numbers are at for the Facebook group? More like 3,600 and something. And super active. Oh, completely throughout the whole season. And I think that's a large part because we have a lot of the cast and crew with us in the group as well. We've tried to make it a very positive environment so that they also feel comfortable joining us and, and joining in with us as fans too. It's just a really special place. I, there's nothing I've built like it. You and I actually first met each other because of another show, The Magicians. Tell us about like your genres. Is Are you more of like a Break Bill's Magic Girl or are you more of like a horror... I'm all about Joe Hill and what he's got going on. I'm Joe Hill. His dad, Stephen King. I mean, I basically grew up on his books from the age of probably 12 on and then jumped on reading Nosferatu when I first found out it was a vampire story. So that was many, many years ago. But I, I do sort of tend to stay in the sci-fi, fantasy, horror genres for the most part. And when I first heard about the show, who was behind it and who was going to be in it, I think it was like September of 2018. We built the group and we're just... We were going to be ready for it. <laughs> we were ready. <laughs> no, I mean, and it took off like gangbusters. I mean, I, I heard about Nosferatu a little bit before South by Southwest last year, and then it was at South by Southwest. You know, I got in the screeners, and there was a panel for it. I had read the book probably a year prior, just just because I had read some Lock and Key, and so I knew Joe Hill a little bit. If there's a TV show based on a book, I always try and read the book first before I watch the show. Anyone who's read, you know, most TV adaptations, especially of any kind of fantasy or horror or high-concept property, 
uh, you usually get a lot more in the book than you get in the show. So I always like to have that kind of base. So I reread it as I watched the screeners, and then I went to South By. I, I heard Ashley, Zach, Jamie, O'Brien, and Joe Hill were there, and, and just kind of fell in love with them and their passion for the project, as well as watching the show. It was kind of like I was watching screeners in between you know, the panel of them talking and then asking questions and then kind of like, you know, firing back questions more to them and stuff. It was kind of cool. It was a cool experience how I how I kind of got wrapped into it. And then the show premiered. You know, I, I covered it with written reviews over on our sister site, Pop Culture Review. Now that we have the podcast network here, I was like, well, you know, it's easier just to talk about it versus write about it. Let's do that. It's been a blast just getting to this point. I think when you mentioned the creative team and, and their love for the material, that's definitely a big part of, I think, what help build this fandom and makes it such a family because that's that's reflected in the crew and the collaborative feeling on the set the whole environment and and just the talent that's been created or, or amassed to create this this work of art it's already based on such an amazing story already and to see how that's been translated through all these artists it's it's amazing you actually got to go to set for nosferatu while they were filming season two what can you tell us around that experience without, you know, violating your NDA or any of, uh, without being too spoilery beyond episode one? Of course, of course. I definitely don't want to ruin anything. It's really surprising. I was there for filming parts of the, the final block, the last two episodes, episode nine and ten. I might have read the scripts and sort of seen what's, what's going to happen. And my gosh, everybody's going to lose their minds. I mean, it's just insane. You, you're not going to expect where it's going to go. I'm just ready to see sort of how we get there now. Like I said, the, the crew and the cast are, are amazing people that I had just an amazing time spending the day with them and seeing how hard they work. I mean, we were out in the nastiest poo mud of a Rhode Island farm for like 12 hours in, you know, off and on rain. People were just, I mean, they were just doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it. And with humor and laughter, and it, it really does feel like a family on set, too. If you ever talk to Jamie O'Brien, you'll hear about the weather being a factor in shooting the show. It definitely serves as a unseen character in the show. Their schedules are constantly having to change and shift, and at a moment's notice, I mean, even when I was going up there, you know, there was one plan the day before, and then the day I got there, it was a totally different plan because they had to do reshoots from the weather that week. It's always sort of things on the fly, and everybody just rolls with it and does what they do, and, and it's magic. But let's take the focus back to what we're doing here. This is Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast. Anna and my hope is that this becomes the unofficially official podcast for the show, the talking dead, as it were, for the vampire scene. In our first episode, we're going to be talking about episode 201, the season premiere, Bad Mother, for the first half of the podcast, but then... Anna, tell the fans what we have coming up after we're done. We have a conversation with showrunner Jamie O'Brien. It was a pretty cool conversation. I think she talked to us for about a half hour. I, it was actually pretty illuminating without, you know, you could hear her trying to struggle without revealing too, too much beyond what happened in tonight's episode. But I, I found it very interesting to hear her now having, you know, done two seasons under her belt, like kind of her perspective on the show and where it's gone now. What, what was your big takeaway from, from the interview? How they've handled the storytelling going into the new season versus when they first started out. They just sort of hit the ground running full speed ahead right from the first episode. You feel that passion again in the show and it's almost like double time now. I think that's that's the biggest 
takeaway that I got from it was was their excitement. I think we're going to see a lot of craziness coming. I think it's going to be bloody. With, with that said, and with that little teaser of uh, speaking with Jamie at the end of the episode, let's jump into Bad Mother, uh, the season two premiere, because it was written by Jamie O'Brien, showrunner extraordinaire, and it was directed by John Sheeban. When I saw the name and it popped up on my screen, I recognized the name, but I remembered him because he directed two episodes of Nosferatu last year. Yes, yes, he's back. Especially for like a, the, the season premiere, I always think you want to trust it to someone who knows the show a bit. Totally agree. I'm all for new blood, but I think it's important to start your season strong with kind of like a tested product. Let's talk about that cold open. We get to see Millie Manx uh, in charge of the of the ghoul children in Christmas Land. What was your takeaway from General Millie? <laughs> She's leading a little crazy band of maniacs uh, at this point. What was the game? Bite the smallest, eat him up. What is going on with that game? Are they are they cannibalizing themselves? Are they that hungry? I mean, they were definitely noshing down on that kid, but he also seemed to kind of enjoy it, though? He was into it. Yeah, it was really weird. <laughs> really weird. I mean... Uh, these are all future kink fetishists for sure in the making here in Christmas Land. As we know, we're eight years in the future. That's not obvious yet, but it will become obvious really quickly after the scene, after the after the credits roll. Uh, so we're eight years in the future. So Millie's been holding it down and leading these kids. I felt like there was a bit of a maturity about her. It, I, I couldn't really put my finger on it, but she seemed just to be more advanced. She seems more comfortable in her position of leadership or power. I guess we can assume that dad's been away, so she might have had to have sort of stepped up. She seems to have no problem with stepping up in that role. But, but it's interesting, though, because, you know, time passes, and there definitely seems to be a, an evolution of her maturity. But at the same time, obviously, these, these ghoul children don't age. You know, she's still the little girl she has always been. Yeah. I was a little surprised we didn't get Scissors for the Drifter, though, as the opening game. But maybe that was a little too season one. Maybe maybe we're just going straight cannibal. I think they're hungry. I don't think Dad's been there for a while. I don't think anybody's been bringing them any drifters. When, when you got to go on your set visit, you said that you were there for the shooting of uh, episodes 9 and 10. Did you get to meet Matea Conforti at all? No, I did not meet Matea. I basically tried to let the actors come on, do their job, and, and just like to watch what they were doing, saw the work on the screen, and, and listen to the different takes and everything. You know, I kind of tried to just stay in the shadows, <laughs> out of the way, because I wanted, I wanted to just let people do their jobs. After watching this first episode, we have Matea Conforti, as well as Ashley Romans, and Jonathan Langdon are all now series regulars. Jonathan, obviously, playing Lou Carmody, who we only saw in one episode. Millie, we saw a little bit last year, and Detective Tabitha Hutter, we saw a little bit last year. Just in general, the new blood, did you feel like it affected the vibe of the show? Think back to the season, the series premiere last year. A different energy, but a more positive energy. It feels like our characters are being looked out for by these new characters. Vic is being looked out for by Lou, and Maggie's being looked out for by Tabitha. There's this immediate closeness that resonates in the first episode, where you're where you're just immediately back in their lives, and it feels comfortable. They feel like they belong. It's great casting all the way around, and I did get to actually meet Mr. Jonathan Langdon. He is incredibly kind, incredibly sweet, and has that same energy that you see on screen with Lou. He seems like just the biggest teddy bear. 
oh yeah, he's playing on the set and was playing trash can basketball and joking around with everybody and everything. Exactly. I, I love that. I love that. Let's get back to this cold open before we move on. I was really blown away by Amelia and the gang being able to hear the kids who are, you know, hunting around by Slay House. Were you surprised at the closeness of the veil between these two? Last season, I always felt like Christmas Land, obviously in Manx's imagination, was so far removed in like a really otherworldly kind of way. And then tonight, it was just this thin veil between them. What's your guess on the importance of being able to cross over like we saw? It reminds me a lot of the role of electricity for anybody who knows the Twin Peaks universe. It's sort of like the signifier between worlds. It's that veil. So we know that also from Nosferatu. The static is that veil that is in between reality and the world of thought. To me, if Manx is suffering, if Manx is dying, that veil is going to become brittle and thin and permeable at least for the moments that he is perhaps hanging on to life still because we also saw the christmas lights going out that world might be starting to dissipate yeah i don't think we can really undersell the importance of the fact that like charlie makes is dead for most of this episode like really dead the lights in christmas land i think you understand at the end when they kind of come back on how really dead he was before then yeah, how tidy he is to it. Right, which is interesting because when season one ends, you know, we have the recreation of that opening scene from the novel where he wakes up with the nurse talking about Josiah and the video games and she drops the blood across her white tennis shoes and that whole great scene that ends season one where he seemingly seemed to maybe wake up. But I guess in the interim, he has died again, you know, or, or just not done well. Maybe he's just been in like a like catatonic state. Somewhere they alluded to he was in a prison, I guess a prison hospital or, or something. He died at some point in there. That's actually a great segue to our heroine. We learn early on uh, with Vic, there's a news report. Charlie Minx has actually died, like died, died, for real died, not just coma died, not just super old man burn, 90% of his body died, but it's like dead, 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 dead. But let's back up. What did you think of eight years on Vic? She's got, she's got a lot of tattoos now. She's got an eight-year-old kid living with Lou, not quite married, but basically married. Married. What, what did you think of this Vic? Sort of PTSD version of Vic. It kind of looks good on her, even though, you know, she might not be the best mom or her partner right now, but she's still got that fire underneath. And I and I, I just love that portrayal that Ashley Cummings brings to her character because it just feels like she's going through the motions now. She's playing this role, but underneath, she's still traumatized. She's still afraid for her family now because she's got that extra burden that extra responsibility of a kid she's still seething at her experience and what Manx did to her and what Manx is what he can do you know in some ways she seemed older and wiser changed by the experience and by having a kid and by having Lou but in, in so many ways even on, early on in this episode she seemed unchanged she still seemed as burdened by the eight years past as when we left her last year. Ashley does bring a lot of fire to the role. It's really interesting to watch her light up. Her whole face changes when Charlie Minx is mentioned. In that first scene, when Wayne asks, we're close up on her face, 
and she's turned away from Wayne. And he asks, who's Charlie Manx? I mean, the face acting she does in just those couple seconds, it's, it's pretty spectacular. It tells you everything you need to know about her feeling about this guy. Even if you didn't know who Charlie Manx was, even if this was your first time watching the show, you instantly feel, oh shit, like, there's something bad here with this Charlie Manx character. Someone who can give you chills just from a look. That, that's some pretty powerful stuff. She's definitely bringing that complexity to the role, and you can feel those layers underneath just seeing it in her eyes, what's going on. I'm not a parent, so this is something that I'm curious about because it's something that you see Vic having to deal with. But how do you explain evil the concept of evil to a young child, that really sort of had me thinking. It's got my gears turning a, a lot. I like that. I'm impressed with how straight talk she is with Wayne. But at the same time, Wayne, Wayne seems to have her cleverness and lose empathy. I mean, he, he may in a lot of ways be like this chosen child. And you can't straight talk with every kid because not every kid is emotionally able to hear the truth hear about evil she doesn't give all of the gory details but she's a lot more honest with him than i think most parents would probably be with their kid i think a lot of what she does in this episode is as driven by her need her mama bear need to protect wayne to protect lou to protect her mother and father to protect maggie for you know avenge craig all of those people i think a lot of her motivation if not all of her motivation stems from trying to protect these external forces and not so much her own well-being oh yeah you definitely get the feeling that she has no problem going out in a blaze of glory to protect anyone that she loves maybe even welcomes it i mean some of her decisions almost seem like i'm not coming back from this journey have, like has that kind of vibe to it that's the the self-destructive personality that she seems to have inherited at least from what we know of her father because she's definitely emulating his drinking patterns so she's got that self-destruction but as an artist i also relate to that a lot because that also seems to be a, a common personality trait a lot of uh, creative personalities there's a lot of vic that I think a lot of people can relate to in that sense and how you're trying to deal with all of these responsibilities that you didn't really ask for. And then at the same time, she's also trying not to become her parents, yet she kind of might be exactly in that position too. So she's also got that added weight. It's a crazy, complex character going on in Vic. It's telling in uh, the conversation later. She has this great moment of kind of self-realization and self-actualization, which I, I definitely want to I want to talk to you about. But before, but after that, Lou tells her she has to get help, uh, like professional help. And it's interesting that eight years gone by, but if you don't deal with the issue, if you don't deal with your trauma. It doesn't matter how many years go by, it just doesn't go away. It doesn't evaporate. It doesn't really heal on its own. If you're at the point where you have little bottles of liquor hidden everywhere, and that's before Charlie Manx's name popped up on the news, that's like your, your basic state of living, you're in bad shape. And you're just putting band-aids over your wounds. Oh, exactly. And band-aids only work for so long and assume nothing else bad happens. It all falls apart really quickly because she never dealt with it. She never really, she just shut down and literally ran across the country to Colorado. That's almost along the theme of, of the whole idea of the corrupted childhood because Vic obviously didn't have the, the best time growing up, dealt with her parents splitting up about eight years ago on top of having some sort of just superhuman power that has come into her life and really turned it upside down. 
there's something about certain people who look back on their life and they blame everything on their parents and their childhood instead of taking responsibility for the part that they might have had in having their own life being kind of screwed up. You know, Vic doesn't have to be hiding bottles around her house. Lou is really stepping up and doing the right thing by recognizing that she needs this help. It seems like he's doing his best to be supportive of her, but also make sure that she doesn't mess up being a parent to Wayne because that should be her real focus. It should be, and he definitely covers her like a like a safety net for a trapeze artist. But I actually had the thought at the end of it, if whether or not he's too understanding. We hear that she drinks herself near death every Christmas, and this has been going on for a long time. He knows that she's not well, but I think his own insecurity in the relationship, he's got this real self-deprecating, like, golly gee whiz, I can't believe I landed myself like a real superhero babe like you. Right. I feel like that insecurity has kept him from really pushing the issue with her. That, and she's a little scary. There's definitely a feeling that she might whip around with a wrench in your face, too. If you made her mad, I feel like Lou has maybe not pushed her to get the help that he clearly knows she needs. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, to his credit, though, he was at the end of the last season right up against Manx, right in his face. You know, so he was there. He saw the craziness. You know, that might be part at least from my perspective, why he might be a little extra understanding because he's witnessed it. He's been there. He's seen it. He saw Craig die. He might have a little little bit of a traumatized section in his brain that might be pushing him as well. He gets it probably even more than say like Linda and Chris who you know saw bits of it but they they never saw really this Lou was there at the at the peak at the denouement of that first part of the story so he really did bear witness but at the same time Wayne calls him dad he he is raising this child with her they are they are married all but in like legal name i got this feeling whether or not he has almost not served her as well by not being a little firm-handed again again one year two years three years maybe all understanding like there's a lot of there's a lot of trauma to work through there like i'm sure he knows about the little bottles of liquor everywhere i don't know part of me was just almost like he's almost too good-natured he's almost too understanding you know i always want him to be like this is not the first time we've talked about this. You need to get help. I think people fall into their patterns over many years in, in relationships. You, you can definitely kind of feel like they've kind of been in the same place for many years now. And maybe we're just seeing the snap where Manx really does kind of come back up. He's on the news. It, it basically, I hate to use the word, but it triggers Vic. Maybe that's sort of the thing that also snaps Lou out of whatever fog he's been in to be like, you've got to get help. You're going to hurt our family if you don't, basically. The episode titled Bad Mother really came sprang to mind because just as we talked about the fact that Vic does everything she does out of the sense of her, you know, protecting those loved ones around her. In her effort to do that, after she torches that poor alligator phone and has her fight with Millie over the phone and throws it in the oven, she runs out of the house. She leaves Wayne in his room, terrified of her, by the way, because of, you know, all of the phone collecting that she had just done, and just leaves him there. No, yeah. Don't call to Lou. No, are you okay? She just gets on her new knife and rides out to go confront Manx's corpse. You know, I get you're doing this because you want to... And Manx, because you need to to protect those that you love. But you're putting your loved ones literally in jeopardy. Like, your house burns down. Is she a bad mother? Are we are we allowed to make that judgment for her? Is it even right for us to have an opinion about whether she's not or whether or not she's a bad mother? 
I think you nailed it. Like, put, just put a question mark on the end of that episode title because it is. It's asking, this is supposed to be our hero, and she's messing up big time. She just sort of goes into almost like robot mode. Manx click, and she just speeds off. Nothing else is in her mind. She's just one track. That's it. She's got to take him out for good, no matter what. Still. Right. You think back to, you know, Sarah Connor in like Terminator 2. She's become so determined to destroy the Terminator to protect her son, she neglects being a mother to her son. Exactly. And not in like a insignificant way. But at the other end of that spectrum, though, Wayne, totally cool. I mean, he is such an understanding kid. He gets... Like, she has to go. My, my son is 12 years old. I wish he was nearly half as understanding when I have to go do things as he is about her leaving him and Luke. Yeah, that surprised me, too. I, I look forward to seeing sort of more of Wayne's character and, and his take on things and, and how he's sort of grown up with a mom like Vic. <laughs> it's definitely shaped his perspective of the world, and, and probably he's grown up too fast. Probably, but thank God, he, he definitely seems to have more of Lou's temperament than hers. Definitely. Which is what's necessary to deal with a, a Vic in the house. I don't think you could have two Vic personalities in the same house. I think it would have gone on fire much faster <laughs> than when she torches the cell phone. L let's talk about the knife real quick, because I, I just mentioned it, and she uses the knife to drive out to the morgue to go visit Charlie Minx's uh, family. Were you surprised that we got a new knife so quickly? I was. When I first saw the title with the wrench and the triumph, also this is another shout out for C.P. Wilson's artwork. He does the titles for the show. He also illustrated the race graphic novel. It was really great to see him back doing the title artwork. As soon as I saw that, I just sort of fell over like, oh my gosh, are we really getting the triumph already? And because book fans will know that, that that's fixed true knife. That's her jam. When we got that into episode, I was just squealing on the side. I just had a blast. It was really cool to see that logo pop up on the screen for sure this is like in a new and improved power of her that you know she has her knife she hasn't had a knife in eight years she has it though she feels it she says hello there i loved when she said hello there in the yes. commercial so good what was your impression of her powers now you know and being able to summon the shorter way and you know talk about her like travel to to the morgue she's definitely seems like she's much more in control now she's fired up and she seems like that she can just sort of call it up because she was in a pickup truck you know everything started to kind of go wiggy and the lights started flashing you know she almost had it with the pickup truck we're, we're back to that concept that we learned i think back in season one with jolene july where you know you can have different knives you can have multiple knives it seems like vick's maturity has also resulted in a stronger ability to call up her shorter way and then also close it behind her. How mind-blowing was it to pop up in the hallway of the morgue and to see her on her bike just shooting down the hallway like that? Oh my gosh, that was amazing. That was such a great stunt. I had a blast with that. So surprising. I loved watching her shoot out and then just skidding out. It was really cool. I like a show where you, you know something is going to happen, but you can't really predict how it's going to play out. And then it plays out and it just blows your mind. The turning around and I don't know if they, they must have gotten an increase in like the, the effects budget. But when we when she turns around and you see the shorter way like connected to the hallway, it was just a cool visual shot looking back down the shorter way. And like the green paint inside when it says the morgue. Like I squealed a little bit. Like I made this little imperceptible noise 
when I saw like the green paint and I heard the bat squeaking and stuff. It was the whole thing was really nostalgic for me from from a year ago. Definitely, definitely great seeing it again. And and the effect was also more intense this time and, and darker and it just feels more primal in in the shorter way. And and knowing what we know, what was it the bats are part of her psyche as well and, and all of that is part of her mindset, I guess you can say. So Vic's on fire. She's got still got some intensity and in, in a darkness to her now that wasn't there in season one. I agree with you. I think everything here was just so much darker. It hit the ground running with a with an adrenaline shot that the first season was much more, I want to say psychological thriller-like, you know, less less gore and more like mess with your brain. The slow build and the menace and, and them dancing around each other and, and Manx and her kind of hunting each other. This is, seems much more like it's going to be confrontational, like two bulls kind of slamming into each other over and over again. That, that was the kind of feeling I got. Just watching her rip through and open the bridge and get to the morgue and skid out, like the whole thing was just, my pulse was racing watching it. I liked that the show was being aggressive in the first episode. You can really tell that the writers just had that energy right away to be able to jump right into the story because season one, we had to learn the characters and get to understand who they were, where they came from, because as it built, what happened to them meant more to us. It had more of an impact. And now we know who they are and we're picking up, you know, even though with the time jump, the writing is so good. It it clues us in right away where everybody is in that eight years. It feels like we're given so much information in such a short amount of time, but not in a way that's rushed, which I love because I'm able to really take my time with it and, and enjoy it as it unfolds and not feel like there could have been more to it. We, we really know and we're, we're getting more detail now that is exciting and, and the stakes are risen. I was struck by two things in this morgue scene. One was I would never, ever put my face so close to Charlie Minx's open mouth no matter whether I thought he was alive or dead. Did you re- recoil at her lowering her face down there? Were you expecting like a jump scare? It was a little grisly. Yeah, there was that anticipation and that expectation of just knowing the genre when that you expect something like that to happen. So I love that it, it didn't. He really was dead. And you almost saw like Vic looked disappointed. She wanted to go back up against him. You could see it in her face. She was there and ready. And then... Oh, gosh, yeah, I guess he, dad, he's really, he's really just dead now. Okay. And that was it. When she screams and stabs and uses the scalpel into his chest, it was not nearly as cathartic as she had hoped it would be. All of that rage that she had that she wanted to take out on him in this epic battle that she had envisioned in her mind, I felt like, I felt like she felt like she had been robbed of that. Yes, Yes, definitely, definitely. And that was like her just trying to get that last bit in, you know, I got to still do this. I got to still get my word in my last word. You have to wonder if when she returns and she sees the fire and and she sees Lou's stony face, you know, sitting in the ambulance and Wayne and, and, and then the conversation that she has with him. You have to think, at the end of the day, she has to be thinking, I did all of that. I risked Wayne's life. I burned down this house we have together. For what? He really was dead. Everyone was right. He really was dead. Was it worth the danger she placed Wayne in to go do it? I know this line resonated with you. Talk to me about this self-actualization conversation that she has with Lou. There's this honesty that came from 
both Ashley Cummings reading of the line and the line itself that just really, I did not even expect the level. It was the line that she says where she says, it's taken me apart in ways that I don't understand and don't think I can be put back together. And that, that comes from such a deep place. You know, that's a dark place to be. That's a horrible feeling. I know that feeling. I, I relate to that sentiment. So it really hit me in the gut. Honestly, I was crying. Was not expecting that to hit me at the end of the episode the way it did. And I think that's a big step for her to realize that maybe that is a point where she can now say, okay, I, I, I do need to get out of this place and, and get help. I agree with you. I think this is the realization of how broken she is from this whole experience is probably the most healing she has done in eight years. It certainly seems to be the most head-on she's confronted the underlying experience and not just lived moment to moment, not just lived in battle mode, but actually took a step back and, and did some reflecting on the experience. It seems like this is is really the first step that she's had in that direction. So with that said, were you surprised that we see her riding off to the lake? I honestly was. Yeah, it was sort of a surprising move. But at the same time, if she's sort of having this cathartic moment, there's some work that she might need to do first in order to then be able to return to her family and be the person and mother and partner that she needs to be and let the trauma of her past go in some way. And like so much healing that has to happen in our lives, you have to go back to where it began. And you have to go back home. I think this spells the return of Linda and Chris and her broken family side of her life. That's my guess anyway. I have not yet watched next week's episode, Staying True uh, Ahead of Podcast Recording. She does have work to do. I think you're 100% right. Big shout out to the FX crew and that cadaver of Charlie Binks. So fucking creepy. So disturbing. But also so realistic looking, though, too, for Zachary Quinto. Like... It really looks like his old man Charlie Minx look when it's laying on the slab there. I know you always like to give credit to the crew that makes this show work so well. <laughs> yeah, that that's a beautiful sculpture from what I understand by Joel Harlow, who does the makeup for Manx in all of his different ages. That's why it looks so absolutely amazing, because he's a legendary Oscar-winning artist. <laughs> it was amazing, and uh, this show doesn't get nearly enough credit for, I think it's creature effects and its its makeup design just a lot of the effects that they do i mean people talk about the walking dead and, and rightfully so i'd say nosferatu though is the next wave of great innovative practical makeup effects things they do on the show are just so unmatched on so much tv and and i'm happy that amc gives them the budget to do that and that they have the talents and the resources to to bring it all to life because it, it's so so good and I think it really immerses you in the story more. Oh, 100%. They really do have top talent working on this show. Like I said, that's what drew me to it in the first place. It's amazing what, what they do with so little sometimes. Seeing something filmed in person versus the final product and how it all comes together and how many people lend their hand to it. it they re they're, they're sorcerers. They really are. The reintroduction of Vic and, and her demons that she's battling with were definitely the majority of the episode. But were you surprised to find Maggie and Tabitha together in this domestic bliss eight years later? Kind of was, but kind of wasn't. I think I was sort of seeing that 
chemistry between them at the end of season one and sort of hoping that's where the story would lead because to me it seems like Tabitha is a good grounding force a good a good sense of logic and and reason to Maggie's more intuitive free-spirited they sort of complement each other in that way um, at least so far that I've seen I agree with you I think they had great chemistry in Gun Barrel last season so I was really happy to see them together when Tabitha comes to her motel, comes to Maggie's motel at the end of the season and asks her to use the tile and she opens up to her about religion and it was just real, mm, mm. just really did a lot for me. I really, really enjoyed it. It was really sizzling. And so I'm, I'm glad that the show leaned into it and put them together. More interesting than that, though, was how Tabitha is not a fan of Vicks. I found myself like making notes and underlining them with question marks about how Tabitha's grounding effect, sobering effect on Maggie will affect her friendship with Vic. Not quite like in a third wheel kind of way, but to me it just seemed like that's going to be a, like a wrench in the works or like a triumph wrench in the works. Did you pick up on, on the animosity there that seems to be bubbling? Yeah, then that kind of surprised me. But then I kind of understand if Tabitha is in love with Maggie, she wants to protect her. Vic is sort of a destructive force in Maggie's life in a way because she pulls her into this dangerous world where Manx is around. Maggie's been hurt by Manx before already. Tabitha is just being overprotective a bit. And we see that, you know, in Maggie having to almost kind of sneak around with her powers. Or, I mean, I mean, overprotective, but maybe not overprotective. Maybe she's actually dead on because... Maggie does end up using her powers to help Vic and has a fucking seizure for it. I mean, yeah, we learned last year about the cost of using your powers while it seems Vic hasn't had a power to use because she hasn't had a knife for eight years. Maggie's cost has gone up exponentially. It's not just a stutter anymore, Anna. She's having full-on seizures. I was shocked by that. What was your reaction? Very shocked, and then also curious, what has she been asking the tiles about all this time over the past eight years where she's used it to that point that that's her cost now? What's she been doing? I want to know. Right, and and it's interesting. I mean, we know she was looking for Bing. I mean, that's what she was looking for Bing at the end of season one, but has she been looking for him for eight years or the race yeah talk about inflation her cost has gone up so dramatically but i also give her a lot of credit to knowing that and calling the emergency services ahead of time that was just kind of heartbreaking i was listening to her like make leave the message and i was like why is she doing that what is going to happen not thinking it would be as bad as it was but jesus christ it was super bad terrifying for her to do that and and I wonder if Vic has any appreciation for what she's putting herself through. Yeah, I wonder if Vic even knows that she's at that point. Credit to Jakar, too, for having to do that kind of movement and that seizure. It was so scary and so realistic. And, yeah, you felt like this is a routine for her. Like, the call that she made... It didn't even sound, she didn't sound alarmed. It was just like, this is part of the process now. This is what she has to do if she wants to use her tiles. It wasn't even like she was that alarmed or afraid of it. Uh, No, yeah, she was just resigned to it, which is maybe the scariest thing of all. Maybe what a good friend she is or what a bad friend Vic is. Uh, And again, maybe Vic doesn't know what the cost is now for her, but she knows that at least that it exacerbates her stutter if she doesn't know it's like, you know, causes full on grandma seizures at this point. It takes Tabitha's shade on Vic and makes you understand it more, makes you appreciate it more. This is the woman I love. She's going to go help your crazy ass, Charlie Banks obsessed 
badass about it, and it's going to put her in the hospital because of it. Or even end her life. I mean, the race tried to run her over last season. You know, we know what, what Max is capable of at this point. You can also see Tabitha knows, too. She's been through it, too. She's almost like Lou in the relationship with Vic, where she's sort of got to be the one to keep trying to pull her back. You know, this is where you got to be now. Be my partner. Be this person. Be with me. Love me. Forget about this other mess, this other trauma, this other business, this danger. We don't know what the result of this last seizure is. You know, we see Maggie have it and we cut away. And, and I agree with you. Big, big shout out to Jakara because you know that she had to probably do that multiple times. And it looks so real and so scary. Yeah, look at her. <laughs> Let's get to maybe the scariest man in Nosferatu in a lot of ways. Bing Partridge, a.k.a. Ethan Anderson, our other Rolls-Royce enthusiast. What did you think of this new eight years on Bing? He's focused. He's got a new vibe. He seems more and more dangerous than he ever could have been. Somehow, what happens in, in the episode with the, the other race owner is horrifying. That entire ordeal, it blew me away. I was not expecting any of that, at least not in the first episode. Props to the show. They're not playing around. Bing going to get his Manx back and get to Christmas land. Most TV shows would draw out the revival of the wraith, the finding it, the restoring it. They would draw out the knife coming back to Vic. This show has an agenda, and so it sets all of our characters up for confrontation really super early. When that engine lowers into the car, and you cut back to the morgue, and that shriveled, scalpel-stabbed heart starts to pump, I mean, I'm not afraid to admit, I fucking jumped. I, it was it was kind of shocking, only because it happened so fast in this episode. I wasn't expecting that, I guess. Oh, I was giddy. I was ready. <laughs> I was ready for Max to come back. I really was. I, I don't know if I was expecting it in the first episode or not, but once I did see the race was getting its engine back, and at that point knew we were getting Charlie Manx back right away. And like you said, they're, they're just setting up all the pieces on the board to go at it full on. And it's really exciting. You, you can feel that energy. They really did a great job setting up the season with this first episode. If this is where we're starting, holy hell, what are the other nine episodes going to look like? Yeah, I've got chills. <laughs> I'm so excited. When, when they finished the filming uh, a couple months ago, you know, Joe Hill had that famous tweet, or it's famous to me anyway, where he said season two is basically like a wraith rolling down the road on fire with no brakes. And based on this first episode, I feel like that has to be probably pretty accurate. I feel like I want to just be on top of the wraith, like doing the teen with guitar like while it's on fire down the road. That's where I am right now. So I'm, I'm all on board. Very bad, Maxie. Before we say goodbye, cut to our interview with Jamie, where she's going to tell us all about returning to season two and the differences from season one. She, uh, she dishes a bit about this episode. Listen in with our interview with Jamie O'Brien, showrunner for Nosferatu. Jamie O'Brien, showrunner extraordinaire. Thanks so much for joining us uh, tonight. Hello. Hi, Mike. Hi, Anna. Hi. It's so I, great to have you. <laughs> it's great to talk to you guys. It feels like yesterday a little bit that we were just ending season one. I mean, you and I did, a, I was just listening back to the live reaction show we did at the end of season one. And it's just crazy to be back here now in June, almost a year later. Yeah. Uh, 
but also kind of a crazy time though too like how i mean you were wrapping season two post-production how, how did that all wind up with uh you know corona and covid and, and all that you know one i hope you guys are safe and sound but two like can you talk a little bit about how that affected the show and 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 taping you know, we finished shooting in Rhode Island in mid-January, so we were lucky, actually, to finish shooting everything before um, before everything got shut down. And we were back in Los Angeles and in the middle of our post-process when California got shut down. Luckily, our both our post-producer, Shauna, and our post-team, we were working with Technicolor, they kind of saw the writing on the wall and knew what was coming. So they had been preparing to be able to keep going remotely. They set up their colorists. They set up, you know, we figured out a way to work with our VFX team. It was slow going and it was a clunky process and there were lots of mistakes along the way, but we figured it out. It slowed us down. It didn't stop us. And we finally turned in. I think we we just turned over the finished episode 10 this week. So we made it through. And, uh, you know, I just... I just want to acknowledge also that it's it is an awkward time to be la- launching a show just given all that's happening in the world uh and all the important work that Black Lives Matter is doing that the protesters are doing and it's funny you know Zach and I were talking over the weekend we were like last weekend we were like do we even promote the show you know is that um something that is insensitive at this time and I thought a lot about it and I thought you know I'm proud of the show and over 300 people worked on it um and so ultimately you know we all kind of have to make our own personal decisions but I decided that I wanted to honor the work. And um, so we're moving forward. I'm proud of it. And um, yeah, I don't know, in terms of our world, we are certainly at a difficult time. My hope is that we come through it into a better world. And I'm truthfully really inspired by a lot of the activists, the young folks, um, including Jakara on our show. I don't know that it could be said better than one this is a work of art, a lot of people involved and, and people, you know, you need that. You need to be aware. You need to be active. You need to be out there, you know, speaking the truth to people, but you also need to rest your brain a little bit from it, I think. And I, and I think that's fair to say, and a show, a high quality show that's going to let you escape for a little while for an hour to give you something else to think about. I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's something that we all need, especially as the pandemic goes on, especially as the black lives matter movement goes on. I think, you you have to you have to I, I think I'm happy that's back I need that I need it back you know so <laughs> my hope is that it that it, it it does offer exactly what you're saying it's a it, it offers um you know 42 minutes of rest and respite and you know a little entertainment when folks need to recharge and before we get into the specifics because we all just finished watching episode one this is you know we're uh, this is coming out just literally uh, moments after the episode ended but. Before we get into the specifics of the season premiere, let's talk about what was it like to return to, to film season two? How, how was it different for you? And if you want to speak on behalf of the production crew coming back as sophomores versus just trying to figure out the thing to begin with? You know, it was like there were certain things that were easier because we'd done them before. Um, and then there were certain things that were harder because truthfully, season two is a bigger, more challenging season than season one. You know, and then some of the challenges that we faced before we faced again, such as the weather. <laughs> and it was an equal challenge <laughs> the second time around as it was the first time. I think uh, Anna came and visited us on set. 
I think during one of our cold snaps, right, Anna? Uh, Cold and rainy and muddy. Oh, yeah, yeah, we got the gamut. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, I have to say, I, I was so impressed with our crew both seasons and the way in which they just excel despite whatever the weather throws at them is uh, humbling, frankly. <laughs> it definitely was for me too, to, to see the work that goes into just the smallest things and, and the amount of time it takes and how hard everybody works. But everybody is so kind and so sweet and so funny and just takes it with a grain of salt. Just that's what they do. It, it's beautiful. We have a good group. We have a great team. I really do. When you guys sat down, when you so you know you guys announced at San Diego Comic Con last year that the show had been renewed for season two, I'm sure you had a plan before then. I'm, I'm almost in fact positive you had a plan for multiple seasons uh, before that point. When you actually went and sat down to break season two, was this what you envisioned? Did you envision the time jump from the get go, or was it just useful? Did you feel like you had told a story at the end of season one and now you needed to come up with something for season two? How was it approaching writing the new season and breaking those stories? We had always planned a time jump. A lot of it we had already thought out previously. We knew a lot of the tent poles that happened in season two. We kind of knew coming into it. And so the discovery process for us was about structure and rollout. I would say. And then, of course, whatever other, like, we did make a lot of kind of character discoveries along the way. But really, it was a matter of, like, the work that we did in the writer's room coming into season two was we know that these are all big tentpole moments that we want to include. How do we structure the season in order to accommodate them and have it make sense for our characters' journeys? Anna actually has a great question. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Actually, it comes from one of the fans in the Nosferatu fans group. You've previously mentioned that multiple writers on the show are playwrights. Yes. Um, So how does having a theater background influence and inspire the writing on the show? Oh, what a great question. A lot of my playwright colleagues get asked questions about how playwriting and TV writing are similar and different. And in certain ways, what I've heard them talk about and what I've observed is that they are kind of kindred mediums in that they are or can be dialogue driven. The language, I think, is really important in both mediums. And playwrights, when they're working on new plays, though they are not called producers on those shows, they kind of take on the responsibilities that television writer producers take on. So oftentimes when playwrights come into television, they already have experience talking to directors, talking to actors. And so they are kind of natural fits for the production parts of being a writer producer. And in addition to that, what I think is really exciting about playwrights is that they to what I was talking about earlier, they they bring a really kind of fresh mind to structure often, especially younger playwrights. I think that um, a lot of times, just the way in which you structure a play, you have to kind of be kind of clever. And I think that they bring that cleverness and spirit of exploration to TV in a way that's really exciting. Well, I definitely feel that in the show. Cool. The pacing, I think, right away from the first episode just was so perfect. And what I really loved is that I felt like so much was covered, but it didn't feel like I was rushed. It felt more like the whole episode had gone by and I was waiting for the end to come up at any moment. And then I looked and there were, I'm only 20 minutes in. 
I love when a story does that. I was so pulled in and so much had happened. But in that short amount of time, it, you guys was, are really on fire. Yeah, I'm, I'm so I'm, glad to hear you felt that way. Thanks, Anna. That's uh, great news. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was a masterclass in efficient storytelling because it was pedal to the floor, but it did a lot of work. But it was a perfect amount of time, though, too. So, uh, yeah, kudos nice. to you guys. Thank that, you. That's the experience, you know. I mean, not not that season one was not efficient in storytelling, but you guys really hit the ground running in this one. Is tonight's episode and, and everything that happened a, a harbinger for the kind of faster paced action coming in season two? Or what can fans expect in that regard? Yeah, I think absolutely. You know, um, one of the things that we discovered in the writer's room early on was that, you know, there's no real mystery left to explore on our show. So in season one, though, always for me, the show was first and foremost a character drama. The supernatural story obviously is uh, is a really big part of it. And for us in season one, a lot of, especially at the beginning of the season, that supernatural story was mysterious. And so it was about unwrapping the mystery of who is Charlie Makes and what is he doing with these kids and where are they going and how is he connected to Vic and what does her power mean and what is that bridge and what happens if you go across it and all of those questions really by the end of season one have been answered so when we started with season two we realized Vic already knows makes she knows what he's capable of she knows what his strengths and weaknesses are he knows her he knows her strengths and weaknesses and so they're just automatically we start from a much higher faster place the stakes are higher. She has her own child who is of age, <laughs> of the age that makes likes to take people. And so the stakes are higher and they already are aware of one another's powers. So that automatically just makes everything move a bit quicker. You said all the questions were answered and, and I don't think they've all been answered or all the <laughs> mysteries have been explored. Uh, actually, this is another fan question from Alina Asperson, uh, which I also had. So we know from episode one, it was in the trailer, it was in tonight's episode, Vic gets a new knife. But is that first bike still out there? Is it still in the shorter way somewhere from where it makes through it? And can you have more than one knives? Can you have multiple knives? Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. I mean, that, that was a question. That was my thought, yeah. but Alina had the same question. So I definitely wanted to ask it since yeah. other people were thinking about it. I mean, absolutely. I think that uh, one of the things that Vic learned from Jolene in episode six last season is that knives can be replaced. Jolene's first knife was her set of skates and her second knife was her wheelchair. And Vic, you know, Charlie Makes did away with her knife in season one, her dirt bike. But she's got a new one here at uh, in episode 201. She gets her second knife, which is her Triumph motorcycle. Yay! Yay! Also notice, too, that the way the shorter way was filmed is a little bit different. The, the mm -hmm. lighting, the effects, is that sort of a product of her having this new knife? Of her being on this different vehicle? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Anna. I think it's, it's two things. Like, one is, in between seasons, we had an opportunity to think about how we portrayed the shorter way bridge. I was advocating for making it darker and scarier so that it would more reflect Vic, who is, I think, in a darker place than she was when we met her in season one. So that was part of the conversation. And additionally, because Inscapes, as again, as we learned in season one, they are a reflection of the strong creative's mind. And I think that Vic, like I said, she is in a darker place, so her Inscape is in a darker place. She is in a less stable place, so her Inscape is less stable. That said, I think that she's also, you know, we learn in that first episode, her power has expanded a little bit. 
it. It used to be in season one that she would have to go to the Pittman Street woods and cross the Merrimack River in order to conjure her bridge. And now, eight years on, she's able to conjure it at will. Not only that, she's able to kind of turn it off as it were, behind her. If you remember in season one, when she would come through the bridge, it would be open there for anyone to see or for Charlie Makes to kind of mess with as he did in episode nine last season. And he destroyed it by throwing her knife onto it. So she's learned from that. And she's learned that she has kind of these new powers in addition to her old powers, which uh, enables her to open the bridge anywhere and also to close it behind her, which I think is maybe the more relevant power. I was so excited to see the shorter way come back, but I got to tell you, the most cathartic thing was seeing the green paint on the wall, the neon paint. Yeah, I, 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 I made such like a weird, happy noise, like <laughs> like a guttural noise when I saw. It. I was like, "It's a morgue!" Ah, it was back. I was just really excited. Um, how do you temper changing the things that work versus you know we need to bring something fresh and new to this? We need to show some progress or balancing the sake of changing things to change things versus being germane to the story. Any changes that we make, we strive for them to be story or character driven. Again, I don't want to get too spoilery, but I feel like it's in the promotional material. So you've probably already seen Charlie Manks looks a little different this season. And I think that that is as a consequence of he has died. Um, (laughs) He's literally died and come back to life. And uh, so when we see him, his character has has become a darker character, if that's even possible, and, and a more destabilized character in a certain way like Vic. So, you know, you see that reflected in his costume. You see that reflected in uh, his posture. The conversation in terms of changing his costume was how do we honor the fact that he's dead and has come back and is in a in a more desperate place. And so that drove that conversation. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and speaking of darker, I, I, I don't want to speak for Anna here, but I found Ethan Anderson to, <laughs> to, to, to be so much more sinister determined focused mature or or more or more with it than last season but all in bad ways yes Uh, yes (laughs) is is this another sign of just eight years on and he's been working for you know trying to bring back his master as it were exactly it's funny i think the way in which we present being in season two came out of conversations that i had with dari who plays him um at the end of season one and his thoughts on it were you know i don't think bing just kind of goes back to being a janitor he said he's been self-actualized um (laughs) and i think that he is uh, you know, he's key, he's been keeping the faith for eight years and trying to figure out how he can be a better help to Charlie Makes so that he can get to Christmas land, which is, of course, his main goal. Yeah. So I think that he's been paying attention to what's been going on with that car. I think he's been paying attention to, you know, the stories of Charlie Makes. And um, he's more determined when we meet him than ever to get to Christmas land. Just reminds me, he's like trying to bring Voldemort back, basically. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but he seems a little more, he seems like a little more with it or a little more evil than Wormtail, you know? But, uh, oh, yeah, for sure. He's learned, you know, he had a whole season of, of henchmaning last year. And I think that he's, he's applying what he's learned in season two. I want to shift to another character because, uh, or characters, uh, we get to see eight years on Maggie and Tabitha are together. Yes. And, and, 
tell us about that. Was was that? A, I mean, I felt vibes between them last season at the end, and especially in that final episode when she come when Tabitha comes to the hotel room and 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 they talk about the tiles and religion. There was definitely some sexy time vibes there. But yeah, I, I, was this always the plan to put these guys together? And if so, how did you guys come to that decision? Because this is not this is not from the book. Um, so this is purely a, a TV show decision. Uh, so I'm curious about your thought process for that. It's funny. I think that it was the thought that we had in season one from the beginning, truthfully, but 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 not something that we were 100% committed to. We were kind of like, Tabitha, we always knew we wanted to expand her role in season two and have her be a series regular. And we had thought about getting her and Maggie together uh, early on in season one. But we kind of wanted to see how they were together uh, first before we committed to it to see if we felt like they had uh, chemistry together. And so that was kind of what, in in a certain way, that, that scene in the finale last year was taking that temperature a little bit for us. And I thought the scene was great. I thought all their scenes together in season one were really wonderful. And so we were excited to put them together uh, so that they could play more scenes together. It seemed to me that Tabitha has some issues with Vic and maybe being a little abusive of her friendship with Maggie. Is is that is that a correct vibe maybe that I'm picking up there? And is that something that without being spoilery that we can look forward to playing out over the season? Absolutely. You know, I think that Vic, as we saw, is uh, is a troubled person, first of all. And secondly, you know, as we saw last season and that and we saw here in this first episode uh, with every gift Maggie tells us in season one comes a cost. And Vic hasn't been using her bridge in eight years. So the cost hasn't really gotten very steep for her yet. But Maggie, you know, at the end of last season, we saw that she was willing to use her bag to try to track down Bing. And so I think that, uh, as we'll see, there was a time where she was using the bag a lot. And that has kind of her, so her, the cost of using her bag has escalated. Um, She's no longer stuttering. It has actually escalated to seizures when she uses her bag. Um, So Tabitha, as a person who loves Maggie, I think is fearful of Vic for two reasons. One, I think she kind of just thinks she's bad news. She knows that she has addiction issues um, and she doesn't really have her act together. And secondly, she knows that dabbling in the supernatural is bad for Maggie's health. And so her fear is that Maggie will get pulled into uh, some adventure with Vic and destabilize both her health and their relationship. In addition to Ashley Roman's bumping to series regular, uh, I was really happy to see that uh, Matea Conforti uh, was in the credits, in the you know the opening credits. Tell us about the evolution of Millie Banks as being the one in charge of Christmas Land over these eight years. How has this changed her? Uh, she seems, if, if anything, more bold and brash and sass mouth than she even was last year. What can we expect from her and and uh, the Christmas Land crew uh, in the coming uh, coming season? Millie doesn't have a very large role in the novel. She's explored a little bit more in the graphic novel, The Wraith, that Joe and C.P. Wilson created together. We have always really liked her as a character. And then, of course, once we cast Matea, we also kind of all the writer producers kind of fell in love with her as an actor as well. And so we were very excited to kind of give her more to do in season two. And so in terms of her character, I mean, what you said is absolutely right. Charlie Makes has been gone for eight years and she's been running the show. Um, so I think that she is, you know, she's used to being in charge. 
But at the same time, when the lights go out, she has the realization that, oh no, Christmas land maybe isn't forever. And I think that her fear that if Christmas land is connected to the health of my father, if something happens to my father, something could happen to me. And that gives her a sense of her own mortality, really, in a way that she hasn't dealt with in 80 years or however long she's been in Christmas land. So I think that when the lights go out for Millie makes, that is the moment that kind of opens up her mind just a little bit. You know, she goes from being a soulless, you know, monster who's kind of just having a good time running the show to somebody who's questioning her place in the world and the stability of the world around her. Does this mean she's going to be kind of stepping up in new ways? And this is what I'll say, Anna. Um, Millie Makes has a significant role to play in the season. You will be seeing more of her. You'll be seeing more of her adventures in Christmas Land. Um, you'll be seeing more of her backstory. And you'll be seeing more of her relationship with her father and what she feels about it. And how she feels about it may shift. Ooh, exciting. What, what was it like bringing uh, Ashley and, and Matea on to more you know, full-time roles how did that change the vibe, if it changed at all? Because otherwise, I mean, a lot of the cast is the same, uh, R.I.P. Craig, uh, from last year. Uh, did, <laughs> did, did it change the dynamic of the show for you as a writer and, and showrunner at all? Talking about upping people to series regulars, I don't want to forget Lou. So I'm going to I'm gonna remind us that he also, um, Jonathan Langdon, was up to a series regular in season two as well for Lou Carmody. I feel like we knew him so long, even though he was only in the one right, episode. Right. I, mean, he, I was already thinking of him as an old old family. Yes. Well, I, he's, I mean, the, you know, it's he's such a great character in the book. So I feel like those of us who know the book feel like he's always been there. But the truth is, he was only in episode 10 last year. And, uh, and of course, he's a series regular now as well. Well, you know, one of the things that was interesting about it, and we didn't approach writing for our characters any differently. I kind of realized it once I was on set that with Matea and Ashley and Jonathan all kind of becoming series regulars, it's actually shifted the age of our cast a little bit. Um, you know, whereas Eben moss Backrack, who plays Chris, and Virginia Cole, who plays Linda, uh, were really the, the biggest part of Vic's world in season one. Um, and we will be seeing them again in season two. They're not old by any stretch of the imagination, but they are really, you know, they're not new in their careers either. Um, and they they are a little bit older, honestly, than Ashley and Jonathan and Matea, obviously. And so it's 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 interesting. And this is really just an observation. We didn't approach this any differently, but I realized that I was surrounded by by young folks <laughs> when I when I was on when I was on set in season two, which was great. You had a uh, you had a relevant video game uh, reference uh, with Wayne in the beginning though, so you're good. You were you were being hip and fresh. I appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, that was that was thanks to Tom Brady, um, our writer executive producer, who is much more knowledgeable about both sports and video games than I am. <laughs> Basically, I've sort of seen how you've had a lot of different various types of projects you've done horror you've done um western historical fantasy and one of my favorites the da vinci stevens i guess romantic drama um is there any genre or type of story that you'd be interested in tackling next like way way down the road years and years from now when nosferatu's over wink wink nudge nudge 
<laughs> oh, what a good question. I, you know, the thing that attracts me to anything that I do is character. I've been really lucky to work in all these different genres and there is something to love about all of them. But truthfully, what drew me to each project initially wasn't a genre, it was character. And, um, you know, whether that is Cullen Bohannon in, um, in Hell on Wheels or Vic McQueen in Nosferatu or, you know, season three, anyways, of Fear the Walking Dead, we had Madison Clark, who I thought was a really interesting character. And of course, Leonardo da Vinci in Da Vinci's <laughs> Demons. There isn't a more interesting character than that. That's always my starting place. Then whatever genre that we find this character in is useful in terms of supporting the story and finding fun ways to help tell the story. Each genre has its own pleasures. You know what I mean? I always love Westerns. I'm always up for another Western. I've never really written for a thriller. I'd love to do something like that. But again, it's always character first, character, character. Definitely. We saw something this episode that we hadn't seen before, and it was the this closeness of the world with the the bad kids walking around the sleigh house remnants, literally being on the other side of this invisible demarcation from Christmas land. Is that a harbinger for things to come with the closeness of the worlds? And, uh, you know, Millie pushes the one kid through and then he evaporates and... Um, is there going to be more interplay uh, between these worlds? You know, last year it was a much more removed concept. You like, you really had to travel to Christmas land and in tonight's premiere. It was literally just over there, you know, where they could hear each other. Inscapes again are a reflection of the strong creative's mind. And what happens in episode one of season two is Charlie makes his mind goes blank. He dies. And I think that there are ramifications to that, right? The, the lights go out in Christmas land. And I think a tear opens between the real world and the world of thought as a consequence of his having died. You know, that's kind of how I think about that veil there, the veil between the real world and the world of thought. And in terms of whether or not we see it again or what the interplay is between the real world and the world of thought, we try to be careful on the show to pay off things that we bring up. So I don't want to spoil anything, but it is the thing that we introduced. So... No, no, no. Lots of winking and nudging over here. <laughs> Lots of winking and nudging. Um, I noticed tonight John Chabon was the director of the season premiere, and he had directed two of the episodes last season. How do you go about bringing in new writers, bringing in new directors, versus working with ones you've that have been on the show before and worked on the show and know how it breathes, know how it runs, versus bringing in new blood and getting new perspective? How do you, how do you find that balance uh, for the voices? Um, what a great question. John Scheiben. I'm just going to correct your pronunciation. Oh, please, so, please do. No, no, that's no, fine. <laughs> you know, this season, in terms of the directors, this season we did some block shooting. Um, last season we did too. We also did, but we, it, not every episode was block shot. And what that means is... Um, for us, anyway, it means we shot each episode together or each each pair of episodes. So we shot one and two together, three and four together, five and six together, seven and eight together, and nine and ten together. And um, the reason we did that is because it allows us 
more freedom in terms of our locations. It just helps production on a number of ways. It also gives each director a little bit more prep time for our kind of big episodes. Um, it helps us in terms of there's a block coming up episodes five and six. One is a much kind of bigger, more difficult to produce episode. And one is a more intimate character episode. Uh, so it helps production in terms of, you know, not burning out in time and energy. This is all a way of saying there were five slots we had this year to fill. And it is, um, you know, it's, it's a complex process because there are 451 television shows. So um, directors are busy. Directors have busy schedules. Scheduling is a big part of, of hiring directors. Um, And, you know, in terms of, we have several returning directors this year. I'm just running through that. We have John, we have Hanali who comes back for episodes five and six. And I think that's it in terms of returning directors this year. There's a director named Craig McNeil who we wanted to work with last year, but his schedule didn't allow him to. And so this year we were able to work with Craig and that was really wonderful. Um, Same thing with Trisha Brock who directs a block. We wanted to work with her last year and her schedule didn't allow. So we have her this year, thankfully. And, um, and also Toa Fraser who directs our last block. We were excited to work with him last year too and couldn't quite make it line up. So, you know, I wish I had a, I wish, I had a better answer, but, but really a lot of it is schedule. No, I mean, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you know, I, I, it always seems as a viewer on this side of the camera, you know, it always seems like a little bit of alchemy, a right peg for a right hole, but obviously scheduling though is also important. You can, you can have the greatest director ever, but if they're not available, then you can't get him or her. And you want to work with people who like the material, who understand the material, who understand your cast. And, you know, I think that we were really lucky last season and this season that the directors who worked on the show, I think were excited. It's a super challenging show to direct just because there are so many elements to it. It's there's a lot of action. There's a lot of character drama. There are a lot of VFX. We're on location so much of the time, half the time you're freezing to death. It's not an easy show to either direct or produce. You know, we've been really lucky in that all our directors have really kind of jumped in and embraced the challenge of it, which has been great. I just want to jump in and give a huge kudos to the the uh, effects department for that Manx cadaver body uh, mm-hmm. feature towards the end of the episode tonight, with especially after the scalpel and then the heart starts. It, it made yeah. me, it made me jump. I felt <laughs> like I knew it was coming, and it still made me jump when I saw it. But it looks so gross, but also so much like <laughs> Charlie May, uh, Manx also. So I'm so glad that you felt that way. That was um, that was all Joel Harlow who does the special effects makeup for Manx. He sculpted that cadaver. And wow, yeah, he's uh, he's pretty talented. We're real lucky to have him. Legendary. He's amazing. He has a book that I have a copy of that is of all of his creations for Star Trek. That's amazing. I don't have it in front of me. I can't remember the title of it, but it's, um, you should check it out. Joel Harlow, Star Trek. If you Google it, you can probably find it. He's, I mean, he's, the work he does is spectacular. We're just about to wrap up here, but Anna's got a great question that I want to end on. You know, it's coming, Jamie. Uh If if you have an inscape, what does it look like? And if you had a knife, what would it be? I think that my inscape would probably be something really boring, like a lot of whiteboards. It would probably look a lot like a writer's room, I think. And um, so that means my knife would have to be a dry erase marker. 
Perfect. That, that's pretty perfect. <laughs> that is pretty, pretty perfect. What about you, Anna? What's your Inkscape and knife? Uh, probably my cell phone at this point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think, yeah, a lot of people would probably join you in that. But my, my Inkscape would look more like um, HR Puff and stuff. <laughs> sort of a Sid and Marty Croft universe. Yeah, yeah I love it. <laughs> Jamie, thank you so much for uh, coming on uh, Strong Creatives. Welcome tonight. And uh, we, we hope we get you back again this season for another one of our podcast episodes. I would love to come back. Um, it's always great chatting with you guys. Thank you so much. And thank you for, you know, talking about the show and yeah. And for your great questions. It's a pleasure. Oh, I, but before we go, cause we, I, I, we just really haven't mentioned this at all. Uh, how does it feel to have the show simulcasting on BBC uh, on BBC America along with AMC? That that's kind of like a, a step up for the show and and more eyeballs being drawn to it. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? Is that a little too inside baseball? I mean, listen, it wasn't my decision. It was AMC's decision, and I am so delighted that they made it because I'm so excited for it. It's um, you know, it's a whole new audience that we have an opportunity to reach, and so I think it's really exciting and pretty cool. Yeah, it's one of those, I think it really helped like Killing Eve find an audience um, when it did that. And so I, I feel like it's this real um, premium move on their part. And to me, anyway, it signals their faith in the show and, and, and that they love it as much as we love it. So I'm all about Agreed. that. Yeah, yeah. I hope I hope you're right. We'll see if that translates to a season three. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that, was, that was one of our fan questions. I figured it was a little too early just after episode one to start haranguing you about it. But that was definitely a fan question. Uh, when are they going to announce season three? So <laughs> I think that, you know, listen, season three is an open question. I would love for there to be a season three, but we ha it hasn't been ordered. And I think that um, whether or not it is ordered probably depends on largely on the success or not of season two. So if you love the show, tell your friends, um, watch it and be active on social media about it. And hopefully we'll get a season three. <laughs> we'll be beating the drum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, literally. I mean, I will get a drum and I will go beat it. So, uh, Jamie, it. Th thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight. Okay, thanks, guys. Take care. Thank you, Jamie. Bye bye. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. That was a fantastic interview with Jamie O'Brien. I, I want to thank her so much for taking the time to speak with us. You know, she's in the middle of a crazy press junket right now as the season is premiering. So I just want to say thank you to her and thank you to the AMC folks for, you know, helping coordinate and set that up. Yeah, thank you, everybody. We really appreciate your time. That's it for this episode of Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast. Join us next week. I mean, it seems we're going to the lake with Vic, so I think we're going to have to see the parents. They're still in the credits. I think they're going to be back. That that would be my guess. And we have a now beating Charlie Manx heart. So I think we're going to get to see Zach Quinto return and make his Charlie Manx debut for season two. We will also be talking to author of Nosferatu, Mr. Joe Hill himself, woo, after woo, the show. Woohoo! Woohoo! Big Joe Hill fan. I'm enjoying everything he's doing. Super excited for you guys all to listen to our Joe Hill interview. We got to spend a great half hour with him just chatting about a wide range of things so it's gonna be a fun interview i hope you guys come back and join us for next week for episode two of strong creatives welcome the nosferatu podcast anna thank you as always for being a fountain of information 
and uh, for being just a great fan to be on this Wraith ride with. It's a real pleasure and a real love. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited for this season. Thank you all for listening. Please head to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, Five Stars. You can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you next week. Shrunk Creators Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast, is an original production of Pod Clubhouse, recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, visit us online at podclubhouse.com.